God, once again, we come before you and we just want to say thank you. Um, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that your goodness and your mercy, as Psalm 23 says, are hunting us down. It's like we're trying to get away from it and you love us so much that you, you're, you're sending your goodness and your mercy out to hunt us down. Uh, we, we honestly, God, have a hard time believing that you love us as much as you say that you do. And so I pray at some level that tonight, um, more than really any uh, biblical truth or head knowledge we might gain, that we might just get a little bit more of a sense for how much you love us, because it would change everything. I pray, God, um, that you would speak now to us. I pray that you would quiet our hearts as we turn to your word. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would open our eyes to allow us to see you, open our ears to allow us to hear you, open our hearts to receive what, you, what it is that you have for us. I pray that you would be high and lifted up in this moment. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that your beauty uh, would be seen clearly. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You, oh, kinda, that's a kind of a half-hearted clap. You can, you can do it or you don't have to. It's kind of like Jesus. You can be seated. Sorry. It's kind of like Jesus says in Revelation, you're, you're lukewarm. You know, let's go hot or cold on the clapping. Let's not do lukewarm. Let's not do lukewarm clapping. Uh, once again, welcome. Uh, it is so good to be with you all. I mean that genuinely. It is so fun for me to look out and see so many familiar faces here. And part of that is because I can actually see your faces in this sanctuary. Uh, it's wonderful to be gathering together. Thank you for, for hanging with us in this crazy transition season. Um, and I'm excited for what God has in store for us. So uh, we are continuing uh, this series that we've been in for a year in the Gospel of Mark that we're calling Let's Go. And I have some maybe exciting, maybe sad news. Next week will be the last one. We are coming to the end of the series. So this is the second to last uh, sermon out of the Gospel of Mark. I want to give you fair warning so no one was blindsided next week and just so crushed that you couldn't handle the emotional letdown. We got this week and we got next week and we're going to be done with the Gospel of Mark. So if you will meet me in Mark chapter 14, uh, we're going to look at verses 12 through 25. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. I'll give you five seconds to get there. Good. This is what it says. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. 
It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink of, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There'd been a lot of weird things happening. There had been a lot of weird things happening since that guy had shown up. Apparently he was from this, from around here. Uh, he was older. Some of the older people knew who he was, but since he had shown up on the scene, a lot of weird things were going on. In fact, a lot of people weren't happy about it. And most of the men had gone to a meeting a few days prior that no one really knew what they were doing there, but I assume it was to talk about all this weird stuff that was going on. My dad went to that meeting and when he came back, the weird stuff kept happening. When he got back from that meeting with all the other dads and the other men, the first thing he did was he went back out behind our house and he took a lamb from our herd. And he said, this lamb is going to stay in our house from now on. So he brought that lamb into our house. It was super annoying. That, that lamb scratched up my mom's hardwood floors. It went to the bathroom where it wasn't supposed to go to the bathroom. That first night, we don't have that big of a house. That first night, it bleated and whined all night because it wanted its mom, kept us up all night. It was pretty annoying having that lamb in the house. But can I tell you what happened? Over the next few days, I started to fall in love with that lamb. It was actually kind of cute. And it went from being this kind of like annoying, why is this thing in my house kind of deal to this, th this thing's kind of nice, kind of like it. It was fun to play with. It was fun to have around. It was, it was cute. It would sit in my lap. It would run around and play with my siblings. I liked having that lamb in my house. It was probably three or four days after my dad brought that lamb into the house that things started to feel really weird again. You could tell just around the village that there was like this tension. People, people were doing weird things. They were saying weird things. One of the things that I had noticed was actually a lot of other houses also had brought lambs in. Didn't know what was going on, but I thought everyone was going for a little lamb pet party. And you know, like I said, it was kind of fun. And so we were here for it. But about three or four days after that lamb got brought into our house, uh, my dad came home at the end of the day, and he took that lamb out back, and I was like, what are you doing with our lamb? And he took it out back, and he killed it. Now, I had seen my dad kill animals before, but there was something different about this one. That wasn't just any animal. It was like our family pet, and we had just gotten it like four days ago, and he took it out back, and he killed it. I was, I was sad. I was hurt. I was angry and I was confused. And then he did something else weird. He took some of the blood from that lamb and he put it in a bowl. And before he came back in the house that evening, he took that blood and he smeared it on the two doorposts of our little house. And he smeared it across the lintel, which is the piece that goes across the top of the door. It's like, what is this? And then he came inside. It was, at the, it was as the sun was setting and he closed the door and he locked it. 
That was also weird because we usually didn't come in that early and he usually didn't lock the door that early. He asked us all to gather around and he said, put on your clothes for a trip. Pack your bags as well. Now, that didn't take too long because we didn't have a lot of stuff because we were slaves. I didn't know what he was talking about because slaves don't usually go on trips, but he was my dad and so I obeyed him. As I was gathering my stuff, packing my bag, putting on my nice clothes for some trip to who knows where, he began to stoke the fire in the fireplace. And he took the lamb that he had killed and he prepared it and then he roasted it over that fire. And as we had gotten all of our bags packed and our cloaks on and our coats ready to go, he gathered us around the table and he sat us down and we began to eat that little lamb that had been living in our house for four days. And as we ate, he told us what that meeting four days, had been, four days ago had been about. He said, this guy, this new guy into town, this guy named Moses, who supposedly talked to God, had told all the men that on this night, God was going to send an angel of death through our land. I don't know much about angels, but I didn't like the sound of an angel of death. And he had also told all the men who were there that if you kill a lamb and you put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of your house, on this night when the angel of death comes through the land, it will pass over the houses where the blood of the lamb is smeared on the doorposts and the lintel. We spent the rest of the meal in silence. I wasn't much hungry, but I did my best to eat. After we finished eating, we climbed into our beds. There were no sheets left, so we just laid on top in our coats, supposedly getting ready for a trip, and we laid there in silence, and it was deafening. Silence. I was really tired, but I couldn't sleep. And somewhere in the middle of the night, I think I was dozing in and out of sleep, I started to hear a sound. It was far off, but it wasn't a good sound, and it grew louder, then it grew louder and it grew louder. And as it grew louder, what I could tell you was that it was the sound of people and they were wailing. It was the most horrible sound I've ever heard in my life. It was the Egyptians. They had not done what we had done. They had not put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts or their lintel. And so that night, as God's angel of death had gone through the land, that angel of death had killed the firstborn in every home. What's really interesting about that night is that a lot of people think that it was only on the Egyptian side of town that someone died in each house. That's not true. Something died in every house that night. Just happened to be that on the Egyptian side, it was a person. And on the Israelite side, it was a lamb. That lamb died so that the firstborn in every house could live. Because when God's angel of death saw the blood of the lamb smeared on the wooden crossbeam of the house, it passed over that house. The next morning, as the sun came up, word began to spread through our village that we had been freed. 400 years in slavery, 400 years as captives, and in one night, we were set free. That didn't really happen to me. It's the story of the Passover from the Bible. I want to ask you all a question tonight. Do you ever feel captive? 
Do you ever feel trapped? Do you ever feel like you don't have agency? Like you're not in control? Do you ever feel like there are forces beyond your control acting upon you and you don't have control? You don't, you're not able to do, it's like Paul says in Romans, I don't do the things I want to do and I do do the things I don't want to do. Do you ever feel trapped? It might be uh, with your job. It might be like, I hate this job. I can't stand these people. I don't want to be here anymore, but you don't have any other option. And so you need that paycheck and you got to stay in that place. It might be financially. You might be like, I have dreams, hopes, goals. I want things. And my financial situation does not allow me to realize my dreams, hopes, goals, or the things that I want. It might be relationally. Have you ever felt trapped relationally where you're in a relationship that you know is not good or you know it's not healthy and you don't want to be in it, but you don't know how to get out of it? Or conversely, you're longing to be in a relationship and you can't make it happen and you feel like you're trapped in that way. Do you ever feel trapped by your health or by your body where it's like my body is not doing the things I want it to do. It is not acting in the way I want it to act and it is severely limiting what I'm able to do in my life. Do you ever feel, there could be a hundred other ways, do you ever feel trapped? You should. And that is not me trying to give a depressing message here uh, on a Sunday afternoon, almost evening. You should feel trapped. Even though we live in this place, Silicon Valley, where one of the highest values of our community is, is control, agency, making things better. We, we have this ethos here that we can create new products, we can create new technologies that will allow us to do the things we want to do, when we want to do them, how we want to do them. What most of us, and if you haven't gotten here yet, you'll get there eventually, what many of us have realized is that no amount of money, success, affluence, uh, achievement will get you to the place where you can do everything you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. We are all trapped. The idea of control is an illusion. If, if COVID taught us nothing else, it is that we are not in it nearly as much control of our lives as we thought we were. And if any of you can say yes to that question, have you ever felt like you're not in control? Have you ever felt like you are trapped? We have a word for it here in the church of Jesus Christ. All of those things that I've talked about and many other ways that we feel like we are not in control all funnel down to one thing. It is the root problem in the entire world. And that is a thing that the Bible calls sin. We are all infected with this virus called sin. And it, is, it has trapped us. We are, we are captive to it. And no amount of success, achievement, money, power, working out, whatever it is, can allow us in and of ourselves to get us out from underneath the captivity that sin has put us under. Sin simply means that God has a standard that we are not able to live up to. And because of that, we are separated from him and separated from God, the source of life, the source of power, the source of hope. We are not able to do much in and of ourselves. We are all in one way or another at some level or another, we are all captive. What do we have in common with a bunch of Abraham's descendants who lived in Egypt 3,500 years ago? They were captive to the Egyptians and, and all of us today, 2022 Bay Area, Mountain View, Palo Alto, Los Altos, we are all captive to something as well and that is sin. 
just like the Israelites needed a Passover lamb, we all need a Passover lamb as well. And that is exactly what this passage that we are looking at tonight in Mark talks about. So as we come to this passage in Mark chapter 14, let me set this scene by this. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. They are there at the time of the Passover festival and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover festival was a, uh, was a, uh, I was going to say party. I don't know if that's the right word, but it was, a, it, was a, uh, it was something that God commanded the Israelites to do every year to celebrate the Passover, to memorialize and remember what he had done in bringing them, delivering them, redeeming them out of slavery in Egypt that night that I just described as we started this sermon. And so uh, m- Jerusalem is swelling with pilgrims in this moment that Jesus and his disciples are there. They are there to celebrate the Passover and Jesus disciples come to Jesus and they're like, are we going to celebrate the Passover? And he's like, we are good Jewish guys. So yes, we are going to celebrate the Passover. And they would have been very familiar with what was going to, to go down that night with Jesus leading them through the Passover. There was a very defined liturgy for the Passover celebration. It is still followed today. There's a whole process where they eat uh, a lamb roasted with bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. They eat unleavened bread because they made it without yeast, because they didn't have time to wait for it to rise, because they had to hustle on up out of Egypt after Pharaoh gave uh, gave them the ability to leave. And at some point during that Passover meal, it still happens today, the head of the household leads the meal. There's a liturgy that they go through. There's a process. And at a predetermined time, the youngest male in the family, the youngest male in the, in the presence of that Passover celebration asks the head of the household, usually his dad, a, a, a singular question. He says, why is this night different than the others? And then the head of the household goes through and tells the story of the Passover and how God spared the Israelites through the blood of the lamb spread on the lintel and doorposts of the door and how he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Why is this night different than the others. And as Jesus and his disciples are getting ready to celebrate the Passover together, that question takes on deeply significant, a deep significance in this moment, because Jesus is about to redefine everything that they thought Passover was about. So as we look at this, I want to look, I want us to draw out just briefly, as briefly as I can, as wordy as I am, I want to draw out three truths that we learn from this passage. And the first one is this. This was all part of the plan. This was all part of the plan. So as we come back to the text, Jesus is getting ready to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Uh, it's the, it's the, the day of Passover. The disciples come to him and say, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And pick me up in verse 13. It says, and he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Now, if you remember the triumphal entry back in Mark chapter 11, a lot of similarities there when Jesus says, go get the donkey and bring it to me so I can ride into the city. But here's what I want us to see in these couple of verses at the beginning of this passage that we're looking at. There are some who do not believe that Jesus' death on the cross was always in the plan. 
There are some, if, you, if anyone is familiar with what's known as dispensational theology, there are some streams of dispensational theology that basically make the case that the cross was not the, it was not the goal, that Israel just screwed up the covenant so badly that God had to do something to fix it, and the plan B was that Jesus was going to have to die on the cross because the Israelites had messed it up so badly. Nothing could be further from the truth. This was always in the plan. It was always part of the deal that Jesus was going to die on the cross. Look at what is happening in those verses that I just read. Jesus is like, go into the city. You'll find a man with a jar. He'll meet you. Follow him. The house he goes into. Ask the master of the house where my room is. He'll show you the room. Is this someone who is like reacting? Is this someone who's being caught out by the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the teachers of the law because they're out to get him and he's not like he's got to kind of move around and try and get away from them and avoid them? Not at all. This is someone who is in complete control. Mark is making it totally clear that he knew exactly what was going on, exactly what was going to happen. There was nothing that was catching him by surprise. He was in complete control. In the moment where it looked like his life was about to spiral, completely out of control, he is orchestrating every single detail. He is like a, a maestro conductor. On the, the last night of his life, he is like a maestro conductor moving all the parts, telling him, I need more winds here. I need more strings there. There's going to be a man with a jar there. There's going to be an upper room there. We're going to go there and have the, the, the Passover feast together. Catch the picture. This was always, this was always part of the plan. And that is really, really important for us to understand because not only does that help us theologically to understand that Jesus' death on a cross is not an accident, it's not some horrible travesty, it, it, Isaiah tells us it was God's will to crush him, it was part of the plan the entire way. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the earth. It was not an aberration or an accident. And so when we think about our own lives, that should bring us a lot of hope and encouragement. Because are there not seasons of life where we are walking through life being like, man, it really feels like the wheels are falling off in this moment. It really feels like this plane is headed down and there's nobody in the cockpit. Are there not moments of life where we, whatever, lose a job, lose a relationship, where our health goes away from us, and it's like, this doesn't feel like it should have been part of the plan. And, and what we can take away from these early verses in this passage that we are looking at tonight is that Jesus, God, totally in control, always. Nothing happens except that he ordains it or allows it. And we don't have time to go into God's will tonight. That's a whole different sermon for a different time. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. But whatever it is that you are walking through right now, it, as crummy and junky as it might be, as, as alone as you might feel, as distant as God might feel, it might just be that this was always part of the plan because God is doing something in your life that you need to go through this in order to become the person that he needs you to be. Jesus' death, Jesus' crucifixion, the night in Gethsemane and the, day, the next day on the cross, it was always part of the plan. Okay, so that's the first thing I want us to see. Second thing I want us to see is this. We all need a Passover lamb. We all need a Passover lamb. So moving on in the passage, when it was evening, verse 17, he came with the 12, they're reclining at table, they're going through the Passover meal, and this is what Jesus says. 
It's been so great to hang out with you guys tonight, and I'm so glad to be with you. No. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Like here they are having this great meal together. It's like the climax of their time together on earth. Like should be all the, the warm and fuzzies, a lot of kumbaya. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus is like, one of you is going to betray me. It's like, how awkward was that in the moment? Like, all right, Jesus. And then that we see that that's their response. Verse 19, they begin to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, what? Is it I? Now, what the ESV doesn't draw out and some other English translations do is that in the Greek, the construction of that question shows that the expected answer was negative. So it's not like this, the disciples are not going around one by one innocently saying, well, is it me? Well, am I the one who's going to do it? Is it me? They're saying, surely not me. Surely not I, Jesus. It's not, I'm not going to be the one who betrays you. Surely, surely not me. But what do we know about the next 12 to 24 hours in the lives of Jesus' disciples from this moment? Like clearly in this moment, he's talking about Judas. We, we, like, I'm, I'm not trying to reinterpret scripture at that level. Like he's the one who betrays him is Judas. But what do we know about the other 11 over the next, call it 12 to 24 hours? Every single one of them fails him. Every single one of them in their own way betrays him. I, I, I very seriously thought about titling this sermon, dinner, a dinner with traitors and cowards. <laughs> because that's who Jesus is having dinner with that night. He's having dinner with a bunch of traitors and cowards. And he's like, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all like, surely it won't be me, Jesus. I would never do something like that. And within 24 hours, not one of them is going to be around. Not one of them lived up to Jesus' standard. I mean, not even close. Not like, obviously Judas was the special betrayer. And, and again, I'm not trying to, to, to gloss that over. But catch the picture. Not one of them was worthy of Jesus in that moment. Not one of them deserved to be having the Passover meal with the Son of God in that moment. Not one of them is worthy of his, his time, his love, his grace, any of it. They all were going to fall flat on their faces within the next few hours. And yet here they are being like, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. They all were going to need redemption. They all were going to need forgiveness. They all were going to need grace. They all were going to need a Passover lamb. Now, some of you will know that my professional sports team of choice is the Cleveland Browns. Was, was the Cleveland Browns. After the stuff that they've done the last few months, for those of you who follow football, I will be actively rooting against them for the foreseeable future, at least until their ownership, like surely until their ownership changes. So it could be a long time. And actually, that's a good thing. Like, I'm going to have fun rooting against the Browns because they lose a lot. And so um, Sundays could be better for me. Uh, the Browns uh, left in the, the mid-90s. They were taken by cover of night by Art Modell to Baltimore to become the Baltimore Ravens, but Cleveland kept the name Cleveland Browns. And in 1999, they were reinstituted as an expansion franchise. So since 1999, the Cleveland Browns have had 12 head coaches. That, that's, that's, that's not even, they're not even averaging two years in the job. You know how many head coaches the Patriots have had in those 23 years? One. Steelers, two. Browns, 
12. <laughs> Why? Because when you stink, when you lose a lot, someone needs to take the fall, right? When, when, when you lose a lot, someone's, got to, uh, someone's head has to roll. Sorry, that maybe is not appropriate to say in church. The Browns have lost a lot, and so they keep firing their coaches. Now, I am not saying that, that many of those coaches did not deserve to be fired. Many of them did. But did all of them? Probably not. Because why? Because in an organization like a professional football team, when you're terrible, whose fault is it? Everybody's. Everybody's. From the owner and his wife down to the junior video coordinator and everybody in between. When you lose a lot, it is everybody's fault. Now the head coach is the, you know, is the front man and they're gonna, they're gonna get fired more frequently than the junior video editor is. But it's everybody's fault. And as we're thinking about the fact that we all need a Passover lamb, I'm going to say something in a moment that's not going to make you have the warm and fuzzies inside. And I'm sorry about that, but sometimes that's my job as a pastor. We're all Judas. We're all the disciples. We are all, Jesus is like, eventually you're going to betray me. And how many of us are like, is it me? Is it I? Surely not me, Jesus. Look, I, I live in Silicon Valley. I went to such and such school. I have a great job. I make good money. I'm successful. I'm good looking. I have control. Like, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm your guy. And just like those disciples that night, every single one of us is separated by God, separated from God by sin, and we all need a Passover lamb. We are not in control the way that we think we are. Those disciples were like, we'll, we'll, we'll ride or die with you. And then Jesus died and they rode away, right? And we're all like, Jesus, I'm your guy. And then it's like, oh, but, you know, I have some things I want to spend some of my money on. Or there's some, some movies that I really want to watch. They may not be honoring to you. I, I, I know this, you called me into this marriage, but it's like, this is a hard one for me. And I think it'd be better if I was out of it. And we could just go on and on. We all, just like those disciples, it wasn't just Judas that needed redemption that night. They all did. We all need redemption as well. It was always part of the plan. We all need a Passover lamb. And then the, the last thing I want us to see, and this is the good news, is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover lamb. See the gravity of that? Just the sound. As they were eating, verse 22, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What is Jesus doing in this moment? He's, he's got all his disciples in front of him who are going, it's not going to be me. It's not I, Jesus. I would never betray you, Jesus. And every one of them, as they say that, he's like, yep. Judas is like, not me. He's like, yes, it will be you. Peter's like, it's not going to be me. And he's like, it's going to be you. James is like, it's not going to be me. He's like, you, John, you, whoever else. I can't remember their names. Bartholomew, you, um, Thomas, you. And, and he's like, every single one of you is going to absolutely fail me in the next few hours. And yet here's what I'm going to do for you. Here is my body for you. Here is my blood for you 
for you. Not a single one of them deserved it. It was simply his love and grace for them. And in this moment, he is completely redefining their understanding of Passover. Why does he say, this is my body? Why do we, why do we, why, when we eat the bread, why do we say this is Jesus' body? That's weird. It's kind of gross. Like, why are we eating Jesus' body? In fact, the early church caught a lot of flack from the surrounding culture because they accused them of cannibalism. It's like one of their main liturgies was they talked about eating someone's body. Why do we talk about that? Why do we do it? Because what did they do with the lamb that was killed the night of Passover after its blood was spread on the doorway? They took it inside and they roasted it over the fire. And what did they do? They ate it. And Jesus is saying to them, it's not some weird like cannibalistic thing. He's saying the very thing that that lamb was for you is what now I was your, for your ancestors is what now I am for you. I am your Passover lamb. Just like we are eating the lamb that was slaughtered earlier today, right now in this meal, you will eat on my flesh, not literally, but spiritually because I am your Passover lamb. Why does he say, this is my blood, which is poured out for many? Why? Because what did they do with the blood of the lamb? They took that blood and they spread it all over the doorposts. And when death came for those who were covered, who were underneath, who were behind the blood, death could not touch them. And so when Jesus says, this is my blood that is poured out for many, it is because his blood, which is going to smear that cross, both vertically and horizontally, when you stand, when you cover, when you are hidden behind the blood that I spill for you, just like your ancestors who were hidden behind the blood of the lamb, death could not touch them. When you are hidden behind my blood, death will not be able to touch you either. I am your Passover lamb. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, this litter, this, this night that you've been celebrating your whole lives, that your fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers have been celebrating for 1500 years. It was not a memorial. It was a preparation. It was not pointing backwards. It was pointing forwards. It was preparing you for me because I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is my death that will cause you to live. He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. And he, in doing so, he completely redefines Passover. And look, that's what he does with a lot of things, right? It's what he does with the cross just a few hours later. What was the cross? Until Jesus died on it, it was an instrument of death and torture. You know, you've heard this before if you've been around church. Like, we all wear crosses around our necks. It'd be like wearing, like, an electric chair around our neck or a vial of, of uh, what's, what's it called? When we, yeah, whatever, poison. It's like, and, and, and here we are wearing this instrument of torture and death around our neck because Jesus took it and took it from a symbol of torture and death to a symbol of life and grace. And he does the same thing with the Passover. It's not actually about remembering what God has done. I mean, at one level it is, but it was always pointing forward to me and getting you ready for what I am going to do. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Way back in Egypt, 3,500 years ago, the lamb, of God, the lamb died so that the firstborn might live. Those Israelites in Egypt, what did they need to do to be saved? It's not a trick question. They had to obey in faith. 
How weird did that sound? I tried to draw it out in that goofy little opener I had. Like, here's what you need to do. You need to bring a lamb into your house, let it live with you like a pet for four days, and then kill it, and then spread its blood on the door, and don't leave your house, and that will protect you. How easy would it have been if you were an Israelite, you know, listening to Moses tell you that to be like, that's weird, I'm not gonna do that. And for those who didn't, they paid a huge price. But for those who said, that sounds weird, but I'm going to obey in faith, trusting that this is from God, they literally saved the, their own lives and the lives of their children. And it is the same thing for us. All we have to do to experience the salvation that the Lamb of God offers us is obey in faith. God says, come to me, give your life to me, and you will find it. And in doing so, hide yourself behind the blood of my son, the blood that was shed on the cross, just like the blood of the lamb. And just like death could not touch the Israelites 3,500 years ago, death will not be able to touch you today. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We all need a Passover lamb. And Jesus is the one who did it. What I love about um, what happens, how this passage finishes up, is this. The Bible makes it clear in other passages that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And on that crazy night in Egypt, God required the blood of the firstborn in every home that was not covered by the blood of the lamb. And yet it wasn't enough. Sin and death still reigned. And the Israelites were barely out of Egypt before they started begging to go back into slavery. And so 1,500 years later, God again required the blood of a firstborn. But check this, back in Egypt, he required the firstborn of the Egyptians. On the cross of Calvary, he offered up his own firstborn so that you and I might find life, redemption, and salvation. Why is this night different than the others? Because God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Get under the blood. Let's pray. God, who are we? Who are we that you would love us so much? That you would see that we were captive to sin, that we were slaves to sin, and that you would send your son to do what that lamb did for the Israelites so many years ago in Egypt. We thank you and we praise you that though you are high and lifted up, you have, you have come down to our level and done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Pray that the reality of your love, the reality of your sacrifice would wash over us as we meditate on it in these moments. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for sending Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. We're going to finish with worship. Uh, oftentimes when we are confronted with the beauty of God and his word, the only appropriate response is to worship and praise him. So we're going to worship now. If you have um, 
a business that you feel like God is calling you to do with him, now is a great moment to do it. If you don't know what it means to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, uh, I would love to talk to you about that after the service or any one of our elders or ministry leaders. Let's worship, and I'll be back up to close out the service.
Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you're prayed for and you're sent.